Hey, welcome back. This is Amy. And this is E. And you're listening to Curse Words and Crayons Presents True Crime. And we are still here chatting about the Candyman Killer. This is our final installment of this case. So thanks for joining back in today and to help us finish it out. Next week, we'll take our typical week off of cases, which after this, everybody needs a little time out. So you'll catch us back in action next Sunday with an honest to goodness, lighthearted episode. It's going to be really fun. I think you guys are going to really enjoy it. It's going to serve as kind of a palate cleanser before we destroy your hopes and dreams yet again. And we start talking about those deep, dark crimes that we all love so much. And if you couldn't stomach it through the entire episode, hey, you're back and we totally understand. We appreciate you being here. So a tiny summary from last week. We went over all the documented murders committed by Coral with the assistance of two teenagers, Brooks and Henley. The first known victim was in September of 1970 and the last of the 28 or possibly more murders happened in 1973. We are now moving on to talk about the conclusion of the Candyman Killer. On the evening of August 7th, 1973, Henley, who's 17, invites a 19-year-old boy over to Corals to attend a party. His name is Timothy Curley. Brooks was not present at this time. He's with his uh, pregnant girlfriend, wife, and child. Or maybe mm-hmm. not. I don't know. Maybe he just took the night off. Regardless, this is just Henley. This is just Coral. Just like the last, what, two murders were as well. Mm-hmm. Henley and Curly arrived to Coral's house where they sniffed paint fumes and drank alcohol until midnight before leaving the house to purchase sandwiches, which say less, invite me next time. That sounds fun. <laughs> Minus, I know I don't sniff paint fumes. It's a joke, you guys. I mean, that, that sounds like a cool teenage night, right? It's appropriate for the time frame. I mean, not that sniffing paint fumes is appropriate, but you know, it's like you're, you're hanging out with your friends, you're doing crazy stuff, you're purchasing sandwiches. I mean, that's like a normal night. Exactly. On the drive back from grabbing said sandwiches, they acquire a third friend, 15-year-old Rhonda Louise Williams. Williams had been beaten by her drunken father that evening and accepted Henley's invitation to join those boys at Coral's house, probably to escape the abuse for the evening. At approximately three in the morning on August 8th, 1973, Henley, Curly, and Williams, they made it back to Coral. Coral's pissed, like super pissed because there's a girl at his house. And apparently vagina's in the home. You got to burn it all the way down. So he's mad. He does not like women. And Henley explained, hey, you know, she's having a rough night at home. I just brought her with me. Which again, why is he still bringing friends back to Coral's? It, that's, that's not a, this is not a safe space for her to be at either. Okay. So you took her away from her drunken father that was beating her to another man who might be rape and kill her. Cool. Good job, Henley. What a great fucking friend. Well, and I wonder what caused, like, there has been not a woman, a female identified person in sight in this entire case. And what makes you think that this is a good idea? Like, yes, it sounds like she was in a really tough spot and he was trying, but like trying to help her. You're a murderer, dude. Like, what are you doing? Just like, here, let me help you. I'm a murderer, but I really care about you and you being abused. 
exactly. Not only that, because maybe he didn't want to murder her. Maybe he only liked murdering boys at this point. Maybe that's the only hankering he ever had. But here's the thing. Not only am I a murderer, but I feel bad for you. So I'll take you home because, I mean, bad people can do good things every now and again, right? That's, I mean, that could happen. But then he's going to take him to fucking Coral's house. I mean, that's what I can't, like, okay, that's not a safe space. If you're trying to do the right thing by her and get her out of this situation, don't take her to Dean Corals. Don't do it. Go somewhere else. This is not the place for you. This is not a safe space. Right? Go swing in a park somewhere. I don't know. (laughs) Figure it out. Go play under a bridge. That's going to be safer than going to this house. Exactly. So now the paint that they'd sniffed and the alcohol that they had drank earlier had probably worn off. Coral is calmed a little bit by Henley's story and offers them beer and marijuana, which again, this is his MO. This is what he does. Right. And okay. I mean, they're at your house. Why not make it fun? But he is like really watching them and not saying a lot, just watching them drink and smoke. And after two hours, all three kids, they're not really kids at this point. All three teenagers pass out. When Henley wakes up, he's on his stomach and Coral's snapping handcuffs onto his wrist. His mouth had been taped shut. His ankles had been bound together. His friends are right beside them, secured together with nylon rope, gagged, laying face down on the floor. And Curly had been stripped completely naked. So had he been sexually assaulted at this time? We're not sure. Coral saw that Henley was awake and removed the gag. And Henley states that Coral said, and I quote, Man, you blew it bringing that girl. Before shouting, I'm going to kill you all, but first I'm going to have my fun. And then he repeatedly kicked Williams in the chest. And that's the girl that they brought with them, by the way. Sometimes names confuse me, so um, I just want that that's the girl. So he repeatedly starts kicking her in the chest before threatening to shoot Henley. Henley's doing all he can to defuse the situation and tell him, hey, you know what? Yeah, I I fucked up. I brought this stupid girl here. You're right. I'm going to help you with this situation. I'm here to help boyfriends just go ahead and untie me and i will help you kill and torment these teenagers together like i'll help you again don't forget we've done this together the whole time don't leave me out we're friends so coral unties him and then carries both curly and williams to his room to tie them to his torture board henley began cutting away williams clothes because coral has instructed him to And he begins to assault and torture Curly. Both Curly and Williams had awakened at this point. So they're full on pleading, begging the whole nine yards, right? Ugh, it's gutting to think about that. Coral instructed Henley to do the same things that he is doing to Curly to Williams. So he wants them to rape and torture these victims at the same time. But I guess the pleading of his friends was enough or maybe himself being tied up, maybe almost being a victim himself. Henley had finally hit his breaking point. He grabbed Coral's pistol and shot Coral in the forehead with it. The same one that he had threatened to shoot Henley with earlier while he still had him like bound and gagged and all sorts of stuff. This did not kill Coral. He started coming after Henley and Henley fires Two more shots off. One of them hits him in the shoulder, which that doesn't kill him either, right? Shoulder shots normally don't. So Coral runs out of the room and Henley's like running after him. 
He fires three more shots into Coral's lower back and shoulder. As Coral slid down the wall in the hallway outside the room where the two other teenagers were bound. Coral died there. He was naked and he died in a hallway outside of his room. To me, it's still hard to believe that Henley had this this change of heart. I really think it was because it had now happened to him. Brooks had been involved, like Brooks had been groomed sexually by Coral. And there was never any talk of that happening with Henley. Like Henley was more of like a henchman almost. And like, it almost seems like, okay, he's finally gotten a taste of what this is like. And he's like, I can't do this anymore. Mm -hmm. Which it took you 28 people to get to that stage. But like, I guess when you're the one in those shoes, that's what happens. I mean, you have to be tied up to find any empathy towards these people that you're you're, right. you're brutally hurting and, and then killing and burying. That's... Right, nothing, also, nothing that has been said shows or says that they are, that he is feeling any kind of empathy. It mm-hmm. could just be like, you've turned this on me and it could have zero to do with the friends. It could have to do with this is, you don't do me like that. Like, I am in control and now his his switch has flipped and he's like, I can't anymore. So I really don't want to believe Henley's statement. I want to think that something else happened. I don't know what this thing is, but I looked more into it and Curly actually backed all of the statements that Henley made. So this is an actual, an accurate depiction of how Dean Coral died. Curly never made a public statement about the Candyman, but I mean, understandably, I bet that day has haunted him every second since then. At 8.24 a.m. on August 8th, 1973, Henley placed a call to the Pasadena Police Department where he just blurted out to the operator, y'all better come right now, I've just killed a man. He did also thankfully give the address, and just to make the day even more fucked up and weird, Henley tells the other two while they're waiting on the police that this was his fourth or fifth time to kill someone by shooting them. Is that supposed to be impressive? Is that supposed to be like, hey, this is my first rodeo. I did this before. Like, what? Yeah, that's weird. It's weird. I mean, are they... impressed by this? They've just been tied up tortured and like it wasn't like oh isn't this fun like that's Mm -hmm. this is a non-consensual tie-up so I don't understand it's insane by May 1974 21 of Dean Quarles victims had been identified with all but the four of the youths having been either lived or had close connections to Houston Heights two more teenagers were identified in 1983 and 1985 one of which Richard Kepner also lived who also lived in Houston Heights the other was Williard Branch, who lives in the Oak Forest District of, of Houston. Elmer Wayne Henley is serving his life sentence at Mark W. Michael Unit in Anderson County, Texas. Successive parole applications dating from 1980 have been denied. He is next eligible for parole in October of 2025. David Owens Brooks served his life sentence at Terrell Unit near Rocheron, Texas. He died of COVID-19-related complications at Galveston Hospital on May 28, 2020, at the age of 65. Rest in non-peace, for sure. To finish this case out, I just want to read off all the names and ages of Coral's victims. 1970, September 25th, Jeffrey Allen Cohen, 
age 18. December 13, James Eugene Glass, age 14. December 13th, Danny Michael Yates, also age 14, 1971. January 30th, Donald Wayne Waldrop, age 15. January 30th, Jerry Lynn Waldrop, age 13, the youngest of Coral's victims. March 9th, Randall Lee Harvey, 15. May 29th, David Williams Hillegast, age 13. May 29th, Gregory Malley Winkle, age 16. August 17th, Reuben Wilford Watson Hanley, age 17. 1972. March 24th, Frank Anthony Aguire, age 18. March 20th, Mark Stephen Scott, age 17. May 21st, John Ray DeLome, age 16. May 21st, Billy Jean Balch, Jr., 17. He was forced to write a letter to his parents first. July 17th, Stephen Kent Sickman, age 17. August 20th, Roy Eugene Bunton, age 19. October 2nd, Wally Ray Simino, age 14. October 2nd, Richard Edward Pembry, age 13. November 1st, William Carmen Branch Jr., age 18. November 15th, Richard Allen Kepner, age 19. And this is his final year of his life, 1973. February 1st, Joseph Allen Lyles, age 17. June 4th, William Ray Lawrence, age 15. June 15th, Raymond Stanley Blackburn, age 20. July 7th, Homer Louis Garza, age 15. July 12th, John Manning Sellers, age 15. He was the only victim to be buried fully clothed. July 19th, Michael Anthony Bouch, age 15. July 25th, Marty Ray Jones, age 18. July 25th, Charlie Carey Cobble, age 17. And finally, August 3rd, James Stanton Draymall, age 13. I am ready for this case to no longer live rent-free in the front of my mind. Reading the victim list to me, wow, that it just really hits home exactly how many families this man, these three men, destroyed. It's powerful to hear all the victims' names, but I feel like oftentimes, especially when we talk about serial killers, the victims get so lost because you're talking about like, oh, it's all these people and this person, you know, went went through all of this huge line of victims. And you forget that these are people. These are somebody's kids. These are you know, members of the same community. And so to hear all those names, it's like chilling. But I do think it's so important to kind of keep the fact that these were actual people so far in the forefront of like the case, which makes it devastatingly sad, but also so real and important to hear. You know, we talk so much recently about I feel like we're always talking about true crime and all the things that are happening, but I do think sometimes I forget 
as I think other people do, like this is what these are real people and they were really affected as you're reading through these this list. The the two victims that really stood out were the two that had something that was unique and different. Like the um, Billie Jean Bouch was forced to write a letter to his parents. Why? What was the reasoning that he was forced to write a letter to his parents? Some of them had to either call their parents or that boy was forced to write his parents. I don't think Dean Quirrell wanted to get caught. So he would... He was trying to have his tracks covered. He's like, write this letter to your parents. Tell them you're not coming home. It's like a runaway letter, not mm-hmm. like a I'm gone, but like a don't look for me type mm-hmm. of a letter. Like a I found a job. Don't worry about me. I'll be fine. You'll hear from me in a couple of weeks. That kind of thing to give Dean Coral more time. But he didn't move after that. I mean, he did move a lot, but it's, he, he still lived in the Houston area. This this. Right have that wouldn't have helped for very long that's why you can really tell towards the end he just got super frenzied and then john manning sellers he was the only victim to be buried fully clothed why like what was the purpose was it that that person didn't happen to be tortured like it was like kind of a quick killing and then he was you know it was like we're just gonna dump him there's just so much and to think that Maybe he knew something he should not know. Maybe. And they just needed to dispose of him quick. Maybe he saw something he shouldn't have seen. And they're just like, we also have to get rid of this man. We have to get rid of him right now. Um, you know, we're we're not in the right mind capacity to do the whole, like, torture rape thing right now. So just, we're just, yeah. We'll do that tomorrow. We'll find someone else. Um, right. Today, we're just going to kill this dude. We're going to bury him. I just... To think of the whole, and not, I'm never going to make sense of this. It's never going to be like, oh, that's why that happened. That makes sense. But I feel like as a rational person, I'm constantly trying to make sense of why did this happen? Why was this the avenue that you took? And I know we talked yesterday about like, well, he was a gay man in the 70s. Number one, I want to make it perfectly clear. And I feel like I could speak for both Z and myself when I say this. Dean Coral was not a monster because he was a gay man. He just so happened to be a gay man who was a monster. And I think oftentimes when you talk about cases like this where you're dealing with marginalized communities, such as the LGBTQ community, it's like, oh, well, that's why we don't let gay people around our kids. Like, no, every gay person is not a murderer. Like, that's not how this works. But you're constantly, and I think it's normal in society to constantly be searching for why. What was the point? Was it the rheumatic fever? Was it the fact that you got, that you left the army? Did something traumatic happen there? And then that's where it happened. Was your father sexually abusing you and nobody said anything about it? Was your mom, like he had a real thing against women. Was it, but he seemed to have a good relationship with his mom. So it's like, was that the case? I read somewhere, and we haven't talked about this anywhere, because honestly, I don't want, and I don't think that Z does either, like, to glorify this person's life in any way, because Dean Coral is a piece of literal human garbage. But he had a girlfriend. He had mm-hmm. a girlfriend of a long time who had kids, who had young boys. She was like, I had no, like, that's, that's at first, was like, I don't, I don't believe that that happened. Homeboys murdering people. Not just like, oh, one person, and I know what you did last summer, and we're not going to talk about it. Like... 20, you know, 25, 28 victims. Like, that's 
that we know of that have been found that followed the same pattern that he followed. I think the hardest part about this case specifically, because the cases we've covered in the past, they've been like, here's one incident. This is this is one thing that happened. Lydia Sherman, it was like a series of things, but you know, this is, here is something that happened and here's kind of the things that led up to it. With this, it's just like, there is no making sense of any of this. And we will never be able to say, oh, I understand now. I understand why he killed all of these boys and that is, and tortured and raped and strangled sometimes on multiple times because he couldn't get them to die the first, like just awful things. And mm-hmm. to then be turned around and killed by one of your like accomplices, but also victims, like there are so many, there are so many things. My therapist may need to hear about this case. I'm not sure. It's just, it's, it's a hard one to swallow. They're all hard to swallow. This is a really hard one. I feel like because it is so senseless and so long and he got away with it for years. Documented case 1970 and then his final 1973. That's still three years of documented murders Mm -hmm. and many, many. You want to know a fact about the case that we didn't talk about? That's disgusting. I I mean, maybe you don't. I'm going to tell you anyways. I always Um, want to. Some of his victims were actually put on the torture board and told to fight each other to death. Like one pair of brothers was tied to the torture board and told that they had to fight each other. And the person who didn't die, he was going to let him go or something. I don't know what you won. Maybe you didn't win anything. You're you're scared for your literal life. So, yeah, that was another aspect of the torture board is if you... There was a possibility you might have to fight to your death while being strapped to it. How does that? I don't. I don't, I don't know. know how that works, but I don't want to understand the logistics. I just know that that was a fact. And uh, again, you can read more about that with in the Man with the Candy. It's a three hundred plus page book that really goes into depth. Or you can go to any of the episode show notes and find our other references and resources. Um, of which there are a lot. There's so many resources out there on this case, which in a way is good, because I feel like oftentimes when you provide a service to the community like Z and I do, you know, we're, we are real good Samaritans in the world. But I mean, in all actuality, and all kidding aside, I do feel like true crime podcasts, number one, are interesting. And it's something that we have an interest in. But number two, like if you don't talk about these things, there's better chances of them happening again because it's not something that people are looking out for. And I hope that sometimes people listen to our podcast and they think it's dangerous to take candy from a person because Z and Amy told me about this case and so I'm not going to. So if you're not already having that common sense, I'm hoping that some of this is helping you to gain some of that common sense. But also it's these boys deserve their story to be told and as intimate and awful as it is, like I just think that it's important. This case was a real downer, Z. Thanks a lot for making us cover it. You're welcome. My friend um, Cecilia suggested it for us. So it is actually all her fault. Um, Oh, and I did have two or three other suggestions for this case after I'd already started it. Oh, yeah. It's it's not only my fault. It is your fault for suggesting that I look into this case. If you want to send us some more suggestions, 
you can always find us at cursewordsandcrayons at gmail.com. And we, we would love suggestions. We would love to hear from you, hear what your thoughts are on any of the cases that we've covered so far, hear your suggestions for future cases, um, and just to chat. So send us an email. Yeah, we have a couple other of your suggestions coming up soon. We're really trying to load up as many good cases as possible for you guys. And we want to do the interesting ones, the ones that don't get covered as much. You know, recently, if you're listening to this podcast in real time, um, the Gabby Petito case has been really in the forefront of the media right now, but also that's really brought up a lot of thoughts and discussion on there are a lot of cases out there that aren't getting the attention that they necessarily deserve and we want to start covering some of those cases too so if you have any cases that are you know involving marginalized groups we would love to bring those cases to light if we don't have suggestions we're going to keep bringing the stuff that we think is interesting because it seems so far that you guys think that those things are interesting too so hopefully you do and you want to hear more about it so we will be back to chat with you again halloween week it's going to be fun and spooky and just not as heavy as this case. So if you're ready for some lightness, uh, come back then. We have something special to help set the spooky mood for the spooky season. And we promise we won't be talking about the Candyman Killer for a long, long time, potentially until 2025 when the parole hearing happens. And we're still doing this podcast. So uh, hit up our Patreon site, follow us on Instagram, and send us emails in the meantime. Z, do you have anything else to add before we take it on out. I just feel like everybody should go on a short 30 minute walk after this <laughs> and listen to some happy music. Yes. So that's my assignment to you before you come back and listen to our next podcast episode. I don't want you listening to anything about crime for at least 30 minutes, happy music and a nice walk outside. Yes. Do something nice for yourself. Come send us messages and we will send you funny jokes if you're scared. We're here <laughs> for you. But until next time, be good to yourself, be good to each other, and we will talk to you then. Goodbye. Bye.